Today on the Dolby Institute podcast, we are discussing director Gareth Edwards' stunning new dystopian sci-fi film, The Creator. If you've seen The Creator, then you already know it features absolutely incredible sound work, but with some unconventional sound design choices for a science fiction movie about AI and autonomous robots. The whole making of a film is that dance between, like you're on a razor's edge, you just go slightly too much this way, it's really obvious and cliched, you go slightly too much this way, it's up its own arse and no one understands it, you know what I mean? And you're just trying to do that knife's edge the whole time. And the, and the way you get there is not through being a really clever, to be honest, is you pick a side to start on and then you go right up to the, the limit. Now, if you haven't seen The Creator yet, let me caution you, we will get into some spoilers. So hit the pause button on this podcast, go get yourself a ticket to The Creator in a Dolby Cinema so you can experience it in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos, and then come back and listen to the rest of this conversation. I am thrilled to welcome Gareth, along with key members of the sound team of the film, supervising sound editors Eric Adol and Ethan Vanderein, and re-recording mixers Tom Ozanich and Dean Zapancic. But I wanted to start the conversation by asking Gareth about the inception and his initial inspiration for the film. Came from various angles, you know, like all ideas do. I think uh, one of the main inspirations was it was the end of the last film I did, and I went on a road trip um, to Iowa, of all places, because my girlfriend's from there, and um, we were driving to a family's house, and, and it's just like a sea of crops, you know, like tall grass. And then there was this factory in the middle of nowhere. And I was just listening to music, trying to sort of semi-think of like, I wonder what I could do for the next film. And this factory went past and there was a logo on it. That, this is the way I remember it. There was a logo on it that was like Japanese. And I was like, oh, I wonder what they're building there. And, you know, my brain being the way it is, I was like, oh, it could be robots, you know, or something. That'd be cool. And then I started thinking, oh, I wonder what would happen if you were built in a factory and that's all you'd ever known. And then you stepped outside into the field and like, you know, saw the sky and everything. Like, what would you think? And I was like, oh, that's a cool, you know, 20 second moment in a movie, but I don't know what that movie is. And then it just kept coming from there. And as we were driving, oh, it could be this. And then that could happen. Oh, it could be that. And it just sort of all came, you know, it folded into place really fast. And by the time we got to the pulled upon the drive, I sort of had the whole movie mapped out. And it's quite rare that the gods give you it like that. And so I was like, oh, there's something in this if it came so easily. Or it's either going to be a terrible movie <laughs> or good. Uh, yeah, so it was kind of, kind of came like that. And then in terms of what people should take from it, I don't have an agenda in terms of like, there's a le so I don't like films that preach. Like it's trying, I, I think the best kind of stories, I mean, we're, I, I, I don't see stories basically as a straight line. Like I try to view them more like a circle. And it sort of applies to sound as well in that my favorite type of filmmaking is when the perspectives change throughout and you sort of get used to one perspective and then you suddenly see it from another and it makes you question your, you know, previous assumptions about something. And so like, you know, in terms of the, the movie as a whole, you're kind of like going off on this journey with this character and, you know, halfway through in theory, you're now you've done a 180 and now you're looking back at everything from a completely different angle. And, and we did that a lot with the sound where in scenes, just as you're getting used to one perspective, you suddenly jump over here and we would try to like flip the switch and create that contrast because to me, contrast is kind of what gives everything a value. Like if you, if everything's the same idea, 
it just becomes like nothing after a while. And so it's like constantly changing gear, like visually, you know, audio, music, whatever, is what keeps everything engaging and, and makes the previous thing and the next thing have meaning. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's, I feel like we did that with the, with all the sound design, like in terms of the perspective shifts and stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, just what Gareth is talking about, um, I think for me is actually probably the one, the single most important important thing to keep in mind as we're doing our work. You know, just the idea of contrast from moment to moment and, you know, um, keeping things from, from going flat and losing drama. So for us, like creating space and negative space, even if it's, you know, as small as, you know, a 24th of a second, like taking out a frame before some big event so that it can really register. That's like such a basic principle of sound design, sound editing. Um, so, you know, to be able to work on a movie with a director who, you know, thinks that way, it's, um, it's kind of a dream. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the questions I, I had for you, Gareth, is, you know, I, I feel like great sound design has been kind of a hallmark of all of your movies, even back to the beginning when you were working on such a, on such a low budget um, with monsters. But where, where did you learn about the power of sound as a storytelling tool? I, I, I really annoy these guys when we go in and do spotting sessions because I start doing the sound effects with my mouth. <laughs> I, I love that. It, it's fantastic. I love that. And in fact, we've recorded you sometimes doing that as kind of like a model. Yeah. Us. I think it comes from playing with Star Wars figures as a kid, you know, like, and playing, doing all the sound effects of the ships and stuff when you play with toys. And then suddenly, like, this is one giant toy. And so we go in, and, and it's really hard sometimes to verbalize an idea. And you're like, what is it's something like, and I'll st <laughs> I do it really badly, but I'll try and do it, like, I'll try and do an impression of it. And then on, on the odd occasion, like we did with the robot cops, the, the yeah, yeah. robot police, I was like, it's kind of like, like imagine like a binary, like it's, it's like a foreign language, but it's like broken binary, like a dial-up modem. But, and I ended up doing it and they made me go on a microphone and do it. And then they put it, they, it's not in the movie, is it? Uh, should we tell you? Yeah. I don't know. Is it? Yeah. Oh, there's, okay. a <laughs> there's a little processed piece of that original recording. Okay, okay. For one, for one moment, yeah. Yeah, I hate hearing my own voice and that, so like, I kept telling them to get rid of it and stuff. But yeah, and then I think it's like, but you know, just to get like a little bit profound for a second, it's like film, what film can do that other art forms can't do is I think they're very close, they're much closer to like memory and dreams you know, in terms of watching the final experience, it's a little bit like how you remember things or how you, you know, dream about stuff at night. And, and so there's like a non-verbal non level to that, which you can't articulate, but it's very much about the use and misuse and, and removal of sound. And like the greatest weapon, I think, that, that you guys have is sometimes silence. And, and there's this, I think there's an assumption going into filmmaking when you've never done this before. Like I first, like our big movie together was Godzilla. And, and there's this assumption of like, if you didn't do anything, like if you just were really lazy as a sound person, it would be quiet or it'd be silent. And actually what happens, it would be really muddy and loud and just so much stuff. And the art, as you guys know, like the art of everything 
is what to take away to tell the story and what beats you want to hit. And then trying to be brave and find moments where, where it's like, okay, and we are always doing this, and this is what's great about these guys is that constantly going, okay, we're, I know we're supposed to do this over here, right? So let's, what if we did the exact opposite? Like, what if we misbehaved? Like, what's this crazy thing here? And try and find something. And often it would be like, you'd laugh at how bad it was, or it'd be like, oh, that doesn't work. Or, you know, you guys would try it and then show me something. But sometimes something magical comes of that where you go, oh, wow, I've not, that feels interesting. Yeah. And there's always this nervousness as a filmmaker when you've got two choices. One is what you're supposed to do. And the other one is like a bit odd. And you're like, oh, I'll go to the, what I'm supposed to do because I can't get told off if I do that. No one can criticize it. And a friend who's like a great filmmaker told me like, no, I always do this. Like that's the path of least regret. And so like you try and never, like whenever something strange happens or something odd, you're like, fuck, let's just do it. You know, let's not second guess it, just do it. And like try and like be different. I love that. I, I, I want you guys to give me an example of, of, of a time when you guys experimented with something kind of off the wall and maybe you thought it was not going to work and then it ended up being in the film. Well, I mean, <laughs> what comes to mind? It's kind of the whole movie. <laughs> um, we took a lot of sort of like risks and weird choices, um, you know, beyond just, hey, maybe space can be silent. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think maybe what allowed us to take the most risks was Gareth and Hank um, cutting the whole movie without music. Yeah. And uh, which kind of created this blank canvas for us to do these weird switches and play perspectives, be totally immersed in something and then pull the rug out from under the audience. I mean, what you would always tell us is like, okay, we're, the audience is kind of like a little hungry chick and you're sort of placing these little kernels, which are like moments um, throughout the whole film and just kind of feeding the cinematic experience to the audience. And usually we have to work really hard to kind of construct those moments in most films. And on every Gareth movie, it's super easy because it's just in your nature to create that throughout, so. What's weird is like you get, you get a bandwidth in the, in the brain where you can only pay attention to, what is it, like two things, would you say, <laughs> at once? Two and a half. Two and a half, right, that's probably more accurate. <laughs> yeah. And so, and one of them being like certain frequency higher, I guess, and one being a bit lower or something. And, and so it's sort of, it's, it's crazy it sound, it doesn't hurt to try and do the sounds that you want to hear through the scene. So if it's like, like because you're kind of, you're kind of highlighting the beats that you want to hear. The pieces that are important. Yeah, and then everything else has to get out of the way of that. And it always feels criminal that these guys and their teams like put together so much, so many options, and then you're kind of pulling them away, like in the mix. Like mm. it's kind of one of the main things we end up doing, right? You know, there's a lot of confusion over the years about the difference between editing and mixing, and it's probably even more blurred, I think, probably these days. But because you know, I can edit something by pulling a fader all the way down, right. you know? And suddenly it's gone. Uh, yeah. yeah, or you just shift what, you know, hey, let's go here instead of there with the sound. But, you know, I to me, like a huge uh, sort of overarching thing, 
that I've been talking about for years. You were talking about contrast and everything. It's, is I always use the word dynamics, um, and it applies to everything, right? I mean, we usually think of that in terms of levels, like a loud thing and a low thing, but it's frequency-based, it's like uh, story-based, it's everything. Like if, if you don't keep shifting, like you were talking about, it just becomes boring. Any sound that is just kind of like constantly playing, your brain starts to just go and take it away. So if you want to hear it, you can't just let it sit there playing because your brain will take it away even though it's there. So anyways, there's, I think the, the whole go against what your instinct is, is, oh, well, naturally we should do this next and constantly questioning, well, what if we don't do that, you know, is what's exciting. And there's so many great moments, moments in this movie where like even in the sort of opening thing when, um, you know, he runs out as she's pulling away in the boat and then everything just goes silent and it does, it does these drastic things sound-wise that you do not expect. I mean, we've had people who come on the stage and they're like, uh, is, is that supposed to happen? <laughs> you know, like, did I do something wrong? Oh, here? like they, they think it's something technically right, wrong. Like because, did, right, like, yeah. Now. But then once you see it put together, you get it, that that's what it's supposed to be. But, yeah, it's very, um, it's very emotional, those yeah. kind of things. Yeah. One of my favorite contrasts, we're down in the tunnels. Yeah. And Alfie climbs up and pops outside and you hear all the atmosphere. I love those that stuff. The atmospheres are one of my favorite parts and of this that's, movie. And that example is interesting to me because it goes back to what Gareth was saying was the actual germination of, of the idea of like being out in the middle of this cornfield. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, there's this, this factory there. And what if this factory like built robots and you emerged, <laughs> always yeah. haven't been there. And that's, you know, and into this field of nature. And that's basically that, it nearly that's that moment. It nearly wasn't in the movie. For a while it wasn't, it wasn't in the movie at all because uh, it wasn't written. It was, um, so we shot the stuff where Alfie comes out the hatch and some other stuff. And then there was one time something was being set up and it was going to take like, I think it was an explosion and it was going to take or the wind machine or something. It was going to take like 40 minutes. And it just felt criminal to sit in this field for 40 minutes and not do anything. And I was like, oh, can you get Madeline, you know, who plays Alfie? And he's like, Madeline, we're just going to go in the field and wander around, okay? And so she's such a great actress. Like, that's, I'm just walking around with her and there's like, um, you know, we didn't really even light it. I just, we just found what looked good. And we just say to her, okay, look back. <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay, keep walking. Okay, look around. And she just got this magical look on her face. And you know, it's and and then it just sat as as some footage, never went in the movie. And then one day, I think I was talking to Hank about where I got the idea from, and I told him that little story. And he was like, "Oh, you should have filmed that moment." And I was like, "Well, I did. I've got some material." And he's like, "Where?" And so he grabbed it and he started cutting this little thing together. And I'm so glad I accidentally said that because it's like one of the nicest moments in the film. And Hank on the stage, he, we could not play the app. Atmosphere's like, like wide and big enough for him. He's like more. It should be like alive. And so you guys were invoking Hank Corwin, the the the, yeah. the picture editor, right? Yeah. yeah. Who who is very savvy about sound, 
I, I'd love to hear you guys talk about your collaboration with Hank, what you guys are doing during the during the picture editorial process. When, like, yeah, when do you guys start? Did you read a script before he went and shot? How did this How did this kind of collaboration? Yeah, start? well, we first started um, before you'd finished the script, and we had dinner, and you're showing me a li little bit of concept art, and you're about to go on a location scout in Southeast Asia, and so. Um, yeah, it was before any sort of filming had started. The way we did this film was very strange. Uh, it was kind of, there was lots of things weird about it. Um, one of them was that we did it back to front. So normally what you do is you do a whole stack of concept art. You know, you show it to a studio. They look at it and go, you know, okay, computer says this is $250 million movie. <laughs> and either you can't do it or you're going to have to do it all against green screen in, a, in Pinewood or something. And we were like, no, 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 no. We're going to go to like eight countries around the world, really shoot this thing, imagine it's all there. And then in post, when we've cut it together, and only when we know what the shots are, we're then going to take each frame and design the movie on top. And, and it'll be way more efficient. And you can feel everyone go, we, well, we see the sense in that, but nah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and so we went, OK, can we go on a location scout? And they were like, sure, because of course you've got to go on a location scout. And so I took a camera without telling anyone and with like a 1970s anamorphic lens and all that. And then me and Jim, the producer, we basically went to like uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Nepal, Indonesia, Japan, and over a month and just went to all these amazing places. I shot loads of random stuff. And then I had two problems, which was one was going to ILM and saying, can you prove this process work? Can we just mm. like reverse engineer all the design of the movie on top of this footage? And then I was like, Eric wasn't officially on board. You guys were not part of it at that point. But I was like, would you please, please, please do all the sound? <laughs> <laughs> and I think you did it in one weekend or something. Like, yeah, it was just a few days. Yeah. yeah. And it was like a 10 minute, nine or 10 minute piece you'd cut together. It was a really good, um, basically got the film greenlit. Like you hit play on that piece. And same with actors. Like you talk to actors about the thing, they'd be like, okay, okay, okay. And then you go, just watch this clip. This is kind of summarizing what we're doing. And then it'd be like, okay, I'm in. And so it was worth its weight in gold doing that, I think. So what was that real? I mean, did that, did you, did that kind of establish the look of the simulants or what, 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 what were you accomplishing in that, in that kind of proof just of concept? Just had a vibe. Like it was a, it wasn't a story. It was a bit arty. <laughs> Like it was a little bit, it was not like, there was no story to it. It was just textural. It reminded me of Baraka. Well, exactly, yeah. 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 It definitely, it'd be interesting like to go back and watch that now after the movie has been completed because it had a very distinct tone. Like you would watch that and say, wow, I've never seen anything. I've never felt anything like this, but this is like, I want more. Yeah. It, it really set the hook. So what were the big challenges for you guys with that proof of concept piece? What were the puzzles that you had to solve? It was actually remarkably simple. 
Um, it it was kind of like a vignette, sort of collection of vignettes, you know. Um, and some of those shots are actually in the movie. Yeah. Um, my favorite shot is the one of the monkey with its two little monkey babies, the little <laughs> capuchin. Right. And uh, so, unfortunately, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia and recorded in Cambodia and the jungles and uh, Vietnam and Thailand. And so I'm like, okay, I can just, this is the perfect project and put all of my favorite sort of sounds that I've never used before into this piece. And so, um, and then Gareth, you cut sort of some music for it too. Mm. And then we did kind of a, a mix and yeah, I mean, it was pretty easy and quick. And I think you had one round of notes or something and then- Did I? Yeah. <laughs> that was it. Well, how could you not? You're like, there's, you're well, like, I was, getting, I was getting it for free. I was like, could you? Uh... You're like, so this person that's in this shot, that's going to be a robot. Oh, okay. So can you do some Fair robot enough. Enough. sounds for right. that? And I was like, okay, is the head going to be turning in the same way? I think so. I'm like, okay. <laughs> it was kind of the same process as we experienced in the movie. Because yeah, when, we, when we started on the movie, there was pretty much almost no visual effects. Right. In fact, the first tent mix we did, we were talking about it yesterday because Tom was like, yeah, I was like trying to mix and I had no idea what was going on because- It was just words flying across was, the screen of text. like what was yeah. happening and tank, you know, or- you Jet know, copter. Jet copter. You know, there'd be a guy running by and it says AI and I'm like, robot, you know, and you're just going, okay. Yeah. <laughs> And then when we're mixing the movie, it'd be there'd be characters that would be a person, and then one day we get a picture update, and boom, it's a full-blown robot, like amazing-looking. So you know. all the robots were shot during production with real actors, and then you basically just replace them with via, with ILM VFX as you yeah, through the process. But we, I found that <clears throat> a lot of people would come, and if they if they knew they were AI, they would start saying, okay, well, what, how does how should the robot move? Is it like, and you go, no, 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 stop. Like, forget you're a robot. These robots think they're humans. Like, don't play it like, just pretend you're not in a sci-fi movie. This is a drama about a war and blah, blah, blah. And they go, okay. And you can still feel them like, still feeling like they're a robot a little bit. And so I stopped telling people. And so really? like- So with the actors, you wouldn't tell them if they were robots well, the or ma The main or... actors knew. Of course, of course. <laughs> but, yeah. the, but, but like everyone like, sort of the background artists and just the villagers that kind of became part of the film, we'd say, look, you know, you're in a sci-fi movie. Some people will be robots, some people won't. We don't know who yet. And it was way better that everyone just acts the same. We didn't put dots on everybody like you're supposed to. And then um, you get all this like naturalistic material, I hope, and that feels like not quite choreographed and, and real. And then uh, essentially um, in post, uh, we had a whole session with ILM where we would pick people to be the robot. And it basically came down to whatever was like the most sort of rebellious thing to do. Like my favorite shots in the movie are things like where like there's a woman just playing with some seeds in a bowl just and she's a farmer and you don't know, you don't ever see her, but you just see her hands in this bowl. And I was like, oh my God, if that was robotic hands, never seen that in a film just thrown away like that in a kind of artistic way and so I get really excited about and if someone's half asleep just sat there or smoking or something you're like make them the robot because you just don't see that in movies it's always yeah. the person coming in going I'm gonna kill you all you know rather than the guy in the background who's just like doing this very naturalistic thing half not interested and 
And so, so we had a lot of fun picking the right people, but we didn't know who they were until about halfway through post, I think, you know, at least. That's madness. Yeah. <laughs> That's the idea. Madness <laughs> equals rebellion equals surprise but equals it, it drama. But it makes it so, like, real feeling. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I think that was the result was... Well, it just I'm, feels natural. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, and it kind of tees up a question I had for you guys, which was like the development of the sound design of the the simulants, and then the AI robots, and obviously I'm hearing servo motors, you know, some things that I would I would kind of expect, but it, they also feel really organic and mm -hmm. natural, and and uh, I there's that great sequence early on in the film when they're in you know post nuclear strike Los Angeles, and you know one of the uh, one of the people kind of freaks out because I think she has a line I wrote down like they sound real, um, you know they, yeah. the 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 the, the, the robot sound human. Talk like a person. Yeah. Yeah, and that was kind of that's in the uh, Ground Zero site where they're kind of excavating. You know, AIs are banned, but there's still some that are left that they're pulling out and you know mm -hmm. demolishing. And uh, so yeah, this this robot. Um, yeah, I don't know if I can say exactly. You can? can I wound up voicing that robot. Um, <laughs> and it was just temp originally, and then we had you know proper actors um, do it. And yeah. then uh, for Gareth wound up choosing me to do that. But so you know, with all of the robots, there is a human voice that's sort of the starting point. And then depending on the types of robots and how advanced they are and what types they are, there's different levels of sort of treatments and processing. And you know, one thing that Gareth was always kind of pushing was like, uh, a lot of them should have like this sort of vintage feel, like a '70s like THX 1138 kind of feeling to them. Um, so we use some, you know, a lot of those old kind of technologies, but with modern tools, plugins um, to do the vocoder kind of treatments, and it's kind of a whole variety of tricks we used for that. But um, the idea was they should all feel grounded. They should all feel like they're in that place. So we didn't treat like the robot feet differently than we would for the humans unless they're big and heavier. And uh, you know, our main character, Joshua, has a prosthetic leg. That was maybe the only thing, you know, foley-wise that we called attention to when he doesn't have a shoe on, right. um, like in the pool scene, for example. But the, the whole goal was like make it totally believable and natural. I mean, to, to give credit to you guys, because uh, like what we're talking about, you know, like you're saying, what's the thing you're not supposed to do? Like, what's the crazy thing? Like, there's some occasions, many occasions, where you go too far, or you have an idea that's going to destroy the movie, and I had plenty. And one of them was like, I want to treat Alfie's voice. Like, let's try some things. And because I was getting paranoid for, the, for a good half of post-production, we didn't have visual effects of Alfie or the simulants or anything. And, and then when they would, the, the first ones to come in were the easiest shots to do because they could get them done quickly. Mm -hmm. And so basically it was just removing the ears on the frontal shots. Mm -hmm. And so I suddenly was sitting there going, I've designed a movie where you, about robots and you can't tell you're looking at a robot. And I started getting very paranoid about it. And I was like, can you look into, like, let's just try, go from the most extreme to the like very subtle, let's start treating Alfie's Voice and I could see the look on your eyes, like you're going to ruin everything. <laughs> and I was like, "Can we just do it? Can we just see it? Can we just play it and just have a look?" 
And then I came in and, and like, you know, you guys had done like, I don't know how many versions, like from crazy to like nothing. And well, you kind of won because uh, I, was, I was still paranoid, but you sort of. Yeah, it was one of those things where, okay, like it felt so wrong, but it's like, well, he is the director. This is his vision. It was an important so, experiment. To so do. we're yeah. gonna like go there and and try and you know just experiment. Um, but it, yeah, it felt like both of us were like, no, it's like Alfie's. You know, the whole point for us is that yes, she's a robot, but she feels almost in so many ways like more human than the humans. Mm -hmm. And um, then we were, we were toying with the idea, well, maybe she can start, you know, having a feeling, sounding a little more robotic, and then over her arc, it would go away. But um, I think in the end, we ended up with- As the VFX started coming in, and you started seeing more and more of her as a robot, <clears throat> the, for me, wanting to lean on that got less and less. The anxiety of that went yeah. down for you, yeah. Because I was, I mean, I, I got very paranoid at one point that, you, if you took a still frame from like many different scenes in this film, you wouldn't know it was about robots. Yeah. And I think if she had been like not had any mech or any something tech on the side of her head and been completely human-like, probably would have mm. wanted to do something to her voice. Yeah. But as that stuff started coming in, it was like, okay, we don't need to now. And, and it's right in that you start to imagine in a weird way that there's stuff going on that isn't. But you did spend a lot of time doing what would be, I don't know what you call it, but like just the humming sounds, the hum tone of Alfie. Yeah, her energy presence, and then of course she's got her ear kind of wheels that at one point you'd, in the beginning you described like that's almost like bunny's ears, like, mm. oh, attention, and oh, I'm thinking now, I'm processing something, and we kind of treated that like her antenna, you know, almost. So and there's an outer ring, an inner ring, and so that was the whole, that was something we were tracking until the very last day, because. But it's really subtle. Yeah, yeah as it should be. Yeah. Yeah, because it would have been. It would have been. You know, it would have been very easy to go very mechanical with that. With that. With that approach. But then that kind of gets against what you're talking about. About they. They feel more human. Than I think human you sometimes. need to at times in the movie. Again, going back to where you started with some of your comments. But there are times where you need your perspective shifts. You need to forget that she's a robot. You know what I mean? Because like she is in some ways more human than the humans. And um, and so, yeah, like I think the one of the technical <laughs> sort of weird things is when you're processing a voice, you know, depending on the makeup of the actual voice. But a lot of times you have to go far enough that, that you sort of understand that that's a treatment that that's supposed to be that way and if you're in this zone where you haven't quite hit that line it just sounds like it's something's wrong it's bad you know right. and not that like oh that's a robot or that's a so it's it's tricky and i think you know we had set up our mix and everything initially to be able to do that processing live and be able to sort of like dial it up and back and you know and then we just went you know really yeah we don't need that it was all sitting there wasn't it if we wanted it in the mix because we yeah. were still like until the final second we might regret this and so there was a lot of work then that was then just like silenced 
or allegedly done, right? You did do it. (laughs) (laughs) You'll never know. (laughs) But ultimately, it's about the emotion of it. It's about connecting to her, you know, and the feeling and everything. And so you can't let that technical thing, you know, and even the logic of it can't impede the emotion of it like that has to rule what's weird is just the psychology like of of watching or listening to a film where you're completely wrong about levels what you think are the levels are not really what's going on and so like for instance you might go okay i want to hear alfie or one of the robots um like room tone you know like little just the humming of their hard drive or whatever uh through the scene and in and certain moments you'll go okay, that's, that's too loud. In other moments, it'd be like, okay, um, like boost it. And, and to you as, as an observer, it's the same volume, but really you're going up and down right. with it because relative to other sounds and when it suddenly gets quiet and loud, you, you're having to compensate or it's like, I don't want to think about it now. It's, it's getting my attention away from mm-hmm. this dialogue or something. And so there's this massive trick the whole time to look like you're doing nothing. And it's always a shock because you just think, I'll oh, just do nothing there. And doing nothing doesn't work. It becomes a mess and like confusing and distracting. And it's always interesting to hear somebody describe your job and go, ah, they get it. <laughs> <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> you, guys have, you guys have been talking a lot about contrast and dynamic range. And, and I'm kind of curious about your approach to using sound design versus music. Um, and obviously you've got a fantastic score in this film by you know the legendary Hans Zimmer, um, and one of the things I noted when I was watching the film is like that that first sequence where in post-apocalyptic uh, uh, Los Angeles or post-nuclear strike, and, and then you use the Radiohead song, uh, which I've made a note of uh, everything in uh, everything in its right place, and you I mean it's so featured like but it's so it's it has this really kind of great emotional. Uh, resonance in that moment. So I was kind of wondering, what did that song mean for you? Why was it right in that place? Was you know, w- what was your experimentation to find it? And kind of your your philosophy of balancing music and sound design. Yeah, well, a lot of credit for for a lot of these choices needs to go to Gabe as well, who was our music supervisor, who was amazing on the film. Typically, I feel like music supervisors they get this front end credit on the movie, and you're like, what did they do? <laughs> <laughs> and Gabe has completely flipped my opinion of that. Like he really elevated our film and really went the extra mile to, to find like all these Asian, like our movie's kind of quite 70s and 80s in its, and then the, like the, the, you know, retro future, how we used to imagine the future. And he went and did a really deep dive on like, we found like these equivalent of like the doors in Indonesia, this band called um, Golden Wing, I think. And they, they're throughout the movie. And we found this album, we're like, this is amazing. <laughs> so we used them throughout the movie. Um, but um, yeah. I mean, Radiohead is probably, if someone put a gun at my head and said, what's your favorite band? That would be the answer. Um, I listen to Radiohead get it, and as inspiration for movies constantly. And I actually went on holiday to Thailand and on the beach that, you know, the one that Joshua runs down at the beginning of the movie and the explosion and stuff, that beach house, I was staying there whilst writing a film um, once and I was saving, uh, there was an album they'd released, uh, a, uh, a, moon, a moon-shaped pool, and I wanted to listen to it at exactly the right time of my life. Like I, so I'd saved it for a while, and I went out to the beach at midnight and sat under the stars and just hit play on the whole album. 
and it got me thinking about this film, you know, and and so they're a big inspiration. But to the fair, the truth is, you try a lot of different things. Like you don't just go, it's this and that's it. And we experimented with a lot of different music, and and I thought we couldn't get Radiohead, so like don't even go there. But we did. We put some in, and we would hit play. And out of everything we ever tried, that track in particular, it went from a kind of cliched apocalypse now moment where it was um, all the soldiers like gun ho going to war, like yeah. Suddenly to this melancholy kind of like something bad's coming. Like what are we doing? And all, suddenly all the shots of everyone in that jet copter had this extra weight, and it was like oh, this is amazing, and like, please, can we get the rights? Can we figure this out? Um, and I don't know how that stuff works. I don't know if Radiohead ever had to watch anything. <laughs> My secret dream is that Tom York and that will watch the movie somehow, somewhere. See, that's funny because, so first of all, there was other music in there before, and like you said, it was very, you know, Apocalypse Now had that vibe, which was cool and everything, and then this got changed, and I was like, yes that's you know and so i was like we got to do this we got to do this and i did some stuff a little bit unconventional to it to play it in atmos and like just make it really cool in the space and i i love radiohead too and you know i was worried that like as i've been in other things that putting music into a movie and you're like if if those people heard this, are they going to be mad at me? You know, yeah. like that, like yeah. And so I've got that going on in the back of my head. And we were in London uh, for part of our mix of this movie, and so we had a, a local music editor um, there, and we're playing through that part, and um, you know, I'm, I'm loving it. It sounds great, and whatever. And he gets all weird. Graham Stewart's his name, and and he <laughs> he's kind of like doing all this stuff, and and I'm like, what's going on, you know? And he moves over to the middle of the room, and 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 I'm like, you know, everything cool? And he's like, I recorded this. <laughs> really? I was like, wait, what? Oh, <laughs> Yeah, he, he, you know, was working with Radiohead for years and, uh, you know, anyway. So I was like, oh my gosh, he's going to rat me out, you know? Yeah. But he was, he loved it, he said, anyway, so I don't know if that's oh, true. Oh, it's, I mean, it's but, fantastic. Yeah, it's a, it's, yeah. it's really, and it was a bold way to use the song and. It's a yeah, great sequence. It's a fantastic sequence and it doesn't, to your point, like, I feel like it would, if it didn't have that particular song, it would mean something completely different. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. What's interesting though, because we did it one pass, we did it with another song mm -hmm. in pre-dubbing. Yeah. And so we pre-dubbed against another song. And it was great, it worked. But then we finaled to mm -hmm. this song and had to reconceptualize what effects we're doing to Radiohead. Yeah. Which mm. then just went, made it so much better and so effective and so chilling. And then when they land again, with the environment coming, or environment coming up, and the soldiers are walking through the field. Uh, just everything about that, all the way, the trek, the little tiny flute sound from the village, everything about that is just so magical. 
Uh, I like one of the points that you guys were making earlier about sort of the 70s retro tech. And I, I feel like um, there's kind of a, the, a theme in this as well of like, in some ways, I feel like there's been a rebellion against the technology, and you know, because of the fears about AI, and then they kind of take it back old school, and then you, you know, contrast that with the, the new tech of like Nomad. And I want to get into that, but I, 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 I want to ask you guys just nerdy questions about vehicles, weaponry. There's some really interesting stuff going on, especially in the New Asia part of of the film. Um, tell me about developing the sound design of the uh, of the uh, of the weaponry and the vehicles. Well, I think from the beginning, the idea was, um, you know, this is going to be a fusion between old technology and new technology, and it always needs to feel grounded. So it was about, you know, sort of combining old with future and figuring out, you know, what feels right. And it was really sort of case by case by case, you know, just sort of finding our way and finding, you know, the line in terms of what feels like it's the right fusion. Um, yeah, I mean, in some cases, like for some of the boats, we would take like an actual long boat engine, but then give it like a turbo charge kind of quality, like it's been a modified old technology, the same way that with technology today, you know, have, you modify it with new tech. Um, with some things that are completely sort of synthetic, like, uh, well, the tanks in the New Asia yeah. battle, for example, you know, that was one thing that we played with quite a bit. And, and it's, we were trying to figure out like, okay, how do we approach these things? And, you know, if it's a tank, so you think, okay, well, tanks have like a recognizable, you can close your eyes and you know that's a tank. There's a tread kind of rhythm to them. And we're like kind of starting with that. But um, it wasn't until Gareth showed us some of the concept art. By the way, when we're working to these scenes, it's the word tank on the screen. So um, <laughs> the concept art was really helpful. And the thing I thought was so cool was Gareth had designed a void in the wheels. Um, so there was nothing actually connected in parts to the tread. And so we thought, okay, well, what kind of technology would that be? And so we started thinking, oh, that would be like maybe electromagnetic kind of energy sort of sounds. And we played, we experimented a lot with, okay, what would that sound be? And it wasn't until kind of a happy accident that we stumbled on the sound. And uh, my wife, Nia, and I had taken a weekend to go up to Mammoth. Um, it's right around when we started the movie. And uh, anyways, I was like dozing off a little bit at the wheel on Highway 395, and I kind of drift into the median where there's this serrated edge, and the whole car just like lit up with this sound. It's like, that's the tank. <laughs> and so we pulled over, got out the recording rig, set it up, and then <laughs> did it. And we added kind of a tremolation to that, but it's pretty much purely that sound. You know, um, if you'd gone off the cliff, it would have been a much better sound effect. <laughs> I know. Like, so selfish. <laughs> like, not thinking of the film, doesn't care. I can just imagine your wife, yeah, like, oh, God, here we go again. Like, I gotta drive. <laughs> she gotta, loves you, it. You gotta dri I gotta drive on the side of the road and get the sound effect for a while. <laughs> she loves it. Like, our honeymoon, you know, she was with me recording stuff. And <laughs> that's a special, that's a special yeah. marriage. Yeah. Uh, but he also gave you a great gift with that sequence because in the classic kind of like hear it without seeing it, 
you know, the, the, the presence of the tanks is, a, is announced by the, the trees and what they're doing. We hear them long before we actually see them which is just a, a great gift from a filmmaker to give to you guys. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Thank you, Gary. Yeah. <laughs> You're such yeah. a tease. With that, that scene was actually the first scene we worked on with the movie. And, um, and as we were working on it, we're like, oh, man. It, you know, the suspense, what you're talking about, where you hear it first with, before you see it, is, um, it's so suspenseful. And we started saying we really got to like try and hold music out for, you know, for as long as possible. We finished doing all the sound design for the scene and we're like thinking it doesn't really feel like it needs music. And then Gareth came in and he basically said, oh, yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> and we're like, we're oh, thinking fantastic. we have to pitch real hard, yeah. like, you know, really convince him. And he's like, oh, that was the intent. That, that's the idea. So we're like, oh, fantastic. Yeah. Well, the thing is, if you analyze that, and I, I've actually sat and done this, is where like the films I grew up with loving is like measure how much music there is in those films. Because uh, the trap you fall into, it's just so easy when making a movie is you lean on music to, to solve an emotional problem or something, and then you, you start putting it everywhere, and then you can't take it away. It's like a drug, and the second you take it away, the film falls like feels really flat. And it was like, well, the films we grew up loving didn't do that. Um, and there's only an hour of soundtrack in, you know, from what I can remember, it, um, there's only an hour of music in the in the movie in terms of the soundtrack, and an hour of obviously just no music. And that 50-50 split felt really good. And and so Joe Walker and Job, who did the first assembly. And so they did that basically whilst we were filming. And then Hank and Scott took over once I got back from filming and I did the, all of post with those guys. Um, Joe didn't put any music in, probably because he didn't have time. I don't know if it's the way he works. Mm. But we got delivered this assembly, which was like nearly five hours long. It was long film <laughs> and no music whatsoever. And it was, it, you get used to it after a while. And the, what initially you worry is like, oh, it feels flat because there's nothing telling you how to feel anywhere. Um, but after a while, you just get used to it. And we were like, let's try and get through the edit as long as we can without putting music anywhere. Like, let's, because it does hide problems, you know what I mean? It makes you feel things that are not, your story's not solving it, the music's solving it. Yeah. And so it puts extra pressure on the edit to try and get things working without leaning on music. And so we were like in this little like fun experiment of like, let's not put music anywhere, let's just keep going. And it was really hard. And then eventually there comes a point where we need to start thinking about where this music goes because you have to shape the cut. You know, it can't just be you plonk it on top. And so at some point that went away. But the result was we were highly confident in these certain sections of the movie going, you don't need it there. Like, you just don't need it. Well, so tell me about then that, how does that conversation flow through with your work with Hans Zimmer? Like, were you very, were you very prospective or prescriptive about like, we need music here, these sequences won't need it, or, you know, and how did he respond to that? And what sort of, how did that, how did that get shaped in the mix? So yeah, when we hit play on the movie to Hans, it um, had all the temp music in. And so when you sat and watched it, it had, I guess, 50% music. And from what I recall, the general feeling from him was, it was kind of right. Like it was kind of in the right, where it should be. And it, you know, sometimes a composer can go, you don't need any music here and you really should have some over here. But he, I think he sort of agreed with the balance we landed at and where we had it and where we didn't. Um, so yeah, I think 
And then, then you kind of, you know, it's quite simple maths, isn't it? If you're, if you've only got half the movie with music as opposed to the whole movie, you can now spend twice as long on everything. And so you, I think composers, they were all in agreement. And you always think you're going to fight a composer to not have music somewhere. And it's interesting with everybody, like you wanting music in and, and all this sort of stuff. Like everyone is just concerned about the movie and they've got their own department. But often it's about what, like me, I shouldn't do anything here. Like I should shut up and they, they should have this. And, and the big, big thing when you get to the mix, as you know, you can talk about is like, is the great feeling is like the, the two sides that are at war is music and sound and who's going to win. And we didn't have that on this. It wasn't a battle at all, but. We were actually just talking about this yesterday on the stage, uh, the other thing we we're doing, but of how people typically think of it that way. And they often set us up to, to be in this sort of battle and antagonistic situation. And none of us feel that way about it. None of us, we're all like, look, the, the most important thing is that the movie is great. You know, like, I don't really care how much music or effects or this or that are in or what I care about is, does the movie work? And it is, is it the best that it can be at any given moment with the balance and existence or not of any of the elements, right? Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's gotta be a whole thing. It can't be the part. Well, and it also gets really exciting you know, I, I think both of you guys have a great musicality to your sound design. There, there, that's really rich, fertile territory when yeah. you, you kind of get into this and you're not really sure, am I hearing music or am I hearing sound design? It's just all, as you say, just leading towards this thing of like, what's gonna work for the film. And it's really interesting how sometimes you might play a piece of music and like we talked about that bandwidth, like a music's been created often as a standalone experience and it's doing everything that a movie does but with instrumentation. So it's filling every bandwidth. It's getting just the right contrast of, and then you try and layer anything in on top of that or around it or under it, you kind of ruin both. Mm -hmm. And so like you would have a piece of music in a section and you think, of course, you're gonna need to hear the Atmos. You know, you're gonna have to hear like the fact we're in an airport or something or other. And, and it just muddies everything. It's like, the mu I'm not feeling anything from the music now. And you look and there's just one track that's doing a little thing very subtly and you rip it out and you're like, oh, that really works. And it's like try, trying to get a rainbow, not, not mud. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, if you stir a rainbow, you get brown, don't you? So. <laughs> <laughs> we use that saying quite a bit, not stirring a rainbow, but yeah, too many colors that get mixed together, it's brown. It's yeah. the same with sound. Um, you know, the, the, the best kind of sound is at its most elemental, which is pure, like simplicity, like one choice, not yeah. not a ton of layering. Yeah, and uh, yeah, the sound but, of, sound of nomad, right, is a yeah. great example mm -hmm. of music and sound effects playing mm -hmm. nicely. Because the sound of nomad's great. Well, tell me a little bit more about that, because I'd, I'd written a note to my even one of the things I love about this movie is and you guys were talking about it earlier, you trust the audience, you know, that opening sequence on the beach, there's so much going on. We see, we see Nomad scanning before we actually see Nomad. I love that sound design of the Nomad scans. That was 
Just amazing stuff. I gotta give credit to um, Malta Beeler, uh, who did all of that um, sound design for Nomad. And the only things we went and tweaked was the shape of it and then the tuning of it with the music um, to make it feel a little bit more like radioactive, um, which was something we talked about from the very beginning. Yeah, Gareth gave us some pretty specific, fantastic direction for what he wanted that to sound like. And I remember you talking about it like sounding toxic and cancerous. Yeah, it should be like, if you if you stand in front, if you've got the beam over you for more than 10 seconds, you're probably gonna have cancer. You know, it was kind of like the vibe of it, like it's just very yeah. subwoofery. Ooh, yeah, know. I just thought that was such great direction because it's not, it's, we love the kind of direction where it's, you know, the director is describing what he wants to feel as opposed to like, make it like, you know, some other movie. Um, so I tried that first. I was like, make it. <laughs> <laughs> and they could never get there. And then it was, it's like cancer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we get it. Oh, right. That's such a, an easily uh, executable note. Make it sound like it's going to give me cancer. So, like I said, the thing I love about that sequence is like, we don't know. There's so many pieces about that sequence that don't make sense until way later in the film. And you trust the audience to, you know, you're, you want to stay just far enough ahead of the audience to keep them intrigued, but not so far that you leave them annoyed and frustrated. You, you really balance that line really well. I, I'm glad, maybe, <laughs> I'm glad you think that. The whole making of a film is that dance between, like you're on a razor's edge, and you just go slightly too much this way, it's really obvious and cliched, you go slightly too much this way, it's up its own ass and no one understands it, you know what I mean? And you're just trying to do that knife's edge the whole time. And the, and the way you get there is not through being a really clever, to be honest, is you pick a side to start on and then you go right up to the, the limit. So for instance, I think probably in story-wise in terms of our movie, we probably were on the side of like, it didn't make any sense whatsoever. And we were too subtle and too like, we know what this world is, deal with it. And, and then we did test screenings, you know, and you get all these nice forms telling you <laughs> what you've done wrong. And, and, and so you, you kind of read all these reactions and go, okay, there's a consensus that they're not understanding this, so we probably need to invent something that allows them to know that. Like for instance, I hope it's subconscious, but like one of the notes was things like, they, nobody understood um, who side, like there's America and the West and like these sort of new Asian kind of AI, you know, insurgents. No one understood that they were Americans. And, and we're like, really? And so we tempt in Hank Corwin, just did some little voices. I was like, try and let's try and get some NASA voices when it cuts to space. And we just hear some American voices. And on the ground, it was really important, like these little story notes that you have to tell when they go like, one, two, three, you know, like, that you go, that's an American voice. So your brain goes, these frogmen are American and then you're kind of good. But there's little things like that that you don't start off doing and people are just lost. Interesting, yeah. And then, and then like in the mix, you're like, oh no, we gotta, I just gotta hear that American voice because otherwise we pay a heavy price for it later. And Yeah. And then, so I wanna follow up with what you were saying, which was like that, that, that nomad. So there's, there's a balance between effects and music in, in, in some, some of those yeah. spots, you know, in nomad, when the village is evacuating and getting strifed mm -hmm. and nomads coming in, music is playing there as well. So we're, we're 
giving and taking and yeah. as it as it's playing and sometimes you you think you hear nomad but nomad's not there one of the funny things that occurred to me about nomad is it you know it's it's very pure sing, singular sound to it but it's really the only featured featured sound in the movie that's purely synthetic mm-hmm. and which i find funny and ironic because the West has banned AI, right, right. <laughs> but they have the only one purely synthetic, you know, sound in the movie. And I don't know, I, I love that kind it's of... It's a flawed character trait. Exactly. But it's appropriate though, because if you think about it, it really is the highest tech... Right, in the film. In yeah. the film. I gotta say, one of my favorite scenes in the film is on the bridge with the running robots yeah. uh, <laughs> and, and Alfie kind of being in there and turning the... Ro- I love the way you handle the sound of like the robots turning off and then turning back on. Just tell me a little bit about that sequence and how that came together. It's from an audio standpoint, it's one of my favorite sequences in the film. Yeah, I love so that's G13 and G14, which are kind of lower tech bomb robots that are sent out to take out the insurgents and Alfie. And, and it's really hilarious. You, you design this thing so they just kind of run out there and then yeah. just kind of run into the middle of things and then <laughs> blow up. It's, yeah. it's, it was very comedic. You know, in a, in, but there's in a lot a, of that, that vibe of that in the movie. I mean, some yeah. of the music choices, some of just the like, little beats that happen, that's what's so great about it. I mean, it just makes it yeah. fun in the midst of some, you know, sort of dark things at times. I actually, and, I actually <laughs> had that idea on Godzilla. It was really like... I don't know, I can't remember exactly what was happening, but I was with Bob Duchesne, who was editing that, and we were in post, and we were having lunch, and I just made a, I don't even know, I just, for whatever, I had the idea, and I, I think I said it out loud to people, but the idea of like a, uh, I guess Boston Dynamics might have just started, but the idea of like a, a, a robot dog that's got a countdown timer on it. And I was like, what would you do if it just came in, and you could sit going five, four, three, and he just ran past us. <laughs> like, and it was this throwaway idea, like, like I guess it's going to blow up and what's it for and what are they doing we don't know and like it went past and we're like oh okay at least we're going to live you know whatever that was <laughs> and and then I just always kept it in my pocket as like that's a cool thing in a film and then this one as that sequence was getting fleshed out it was like oh maybe it's time for the bomb dogs <laughs> and and then it, they turned into like you know humanoid bombs and yeah. I remember when we first were working on that little sequence you know it kind of got chills there's something really amazing when Alfie touches um, it and it kind of like turns off and there's something quasi-spiritual about it and and we kind of were experimenting with it and we decided okay let's let's take out all of sort of the reality sounds when that contact happens and we put in a, a didgeridoo sound that we'd treated which is kind of and once it was treated, it sounded like her powers and her energy. And it builds and builds and builds and builds until she pulls her hand off, and then we're back to reality. And when, when we did that first mock-up, like, I remember I just had goosebumps. I was like, oh my god, this is like amazingly emotional. And it's like, it's all Gareth doing it. But to me, that's, that moment is like the alchemy of like sound and picture and there's something amazing about credit it. to joe and yob who kind of uh put the assembly of that sequence together in that i when you're filming basically an editor starts constructing the movie based on the screenplay and you have very little interaction and 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 they always say like do you want to see stuff we can send you stuff and i'm like i don't want to see anything because whenever i watch a cut or an assembly it makes me 
feel sick. <laughs> I want to kill myself <laughs> because you're like you have in your mind how great you wanted the film to be, and then this, and then it's like the realization of like what you actually got, and you're thinking, hang on, didn't surely we got a better shot than that? And wasn't it? Couldn't you make that cut work with? Because you haven't spoke to them, and they have no idea what you're imagining. So it makes you feel ill. And, and I've never, ever watched an assembly of anything and walked away feeling better. I've always felt like, what have I done? I've, I'm, I'm sending my career. And, <laughs> and they were like, and so Joe kind of texted or said something. And he's like, oh, uh, the studio wants to come in and just watch five minutes. I think I'm going to show them the tank battle. Um, but I'll send it to you in case you think it's a bad idea. And I was like, oh, no, I'm going to have to watch something now. And like you're trying to convince yourself when you're filming that everything's going great and you can win this. And I'm like, I'm going to watch this clip and hate it and, and feel really depressed and hit play. And it, just, it went really well. And then the, my favorite moment was after this whole sequence and the bomb blows up and kills all these people, um, Alice and Jenny just turns really casually and goes, G14, you know what I mean? And he's like, and here comes another one. And I actually clapped. <laughs> and then I was like, Oh, I liked it. Yeah, and it was like it was. What's that clapping sound? Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it was. It was always. It, it kind of never changed too much. That whole section of the film. It was never too far away from the beginning. Yeah, no. From the very first day we started on that sequence to the finish, there were maybe just a couple of slight like. Well, the big change was that it was a guy with a black suit with a bunch right. of balls on him. <laughs> <laughs> One instance, yeah. <laughs> but it's in the, just the one other thing to like note about that moment that you that you mentioned, where Alfie, you know, touches G fourteen um, to you know to stop his run, um, is it goes back to what Gareth was talking about at the start of this conversation. Um, you know how pulling sound out, going to silence is probably one of our most you know powerful weapons or tools we have. Um, and it's like just doing just that. I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up again. You know, one of the things that I, I really love about the film is the way you're playing with perspective. And you talked early on about things shifting. And, and I love the character of Joshua. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about how you use the sound design. To, actually, kind of, I feel like you were putting the audience in Joshua's headspace. I'm thinking about that that great sequence early on in the LA, you know, part of the film when he's when he goes underwater and he's kind of you know, in that, and it feels very, it feels very internal, and you went very abstract with the track at that at that point. And talk to me about that process. Was that something that you thought about when you wrote that sequence? Did you was that an experimentation that you found in the mix? How, how did that? How did you arrive at that treatment with Joshua? The original, the way it was written, was uh, it was just in a room um, in Joshua's apartment, and the studio were like. Um, we've just done a movie <laughs> where we had a similar scene and we don't want to do the big exposition dump where like there's always, in every movie there is that scene where someone has to explain the movie to, to the, basically to the audience but to a character or something and that was our scene and they were like you can do it anywhere you want but not in a room because we've, we've been there got that t-shirt um, <laughs> and I was like oh, and I came up with like three ideas and, and, and the pool seemed to be the winner, like swimming pool. And thought, I, to me, the way that was supposed to end is the hologram, he sees 
Maya at the end of that sequence. And she and the idea was supposed to be that they turn off the, the hologram projector and she sort of evaporates into the water and is in the water. And we actually filmed this where at the very end when they leave and he decides to go, he ran and jumps and he dives back into the water. And I wanted on the splash to it cut to like of the jet. And we tried it in the edit and it just didn't have the power that I it has had in my mind. It never quite worked. And so then like we shot it obviously and I, I felt like an obvious thing to do when you're underwater like yeah, yeah, totally. I, I don't even remember it ever being that much of a discussion. Um, I feel like... The MRI just... leading into it was maybe more of a discussion. Yeah. And that's yeah. kind of where we start Joshua's headspace. Yeah. Is his kind of interview, like getting right. his psychological analysis and the MRI kind of becomes his state of mind. Um, his sort of angst, you know, he's very troubled and he's lost everything that he cares about. and kind of flash back to those sort of memories and kind of use, you know, don't use the literal sound from those actual scenes, but more sort of like his conceptual emotional state of mind, which is the, that, uh, that heartbreak. Um, but like, like there's little opportunities that you don't think of them all at once. They just start to come as you layer things in. Like there was this sound of the MRI scan or whatever going boom, 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 boom. And then it was like, ah, oh, you know, I can't remember how this happened, but the feeling of like it, it could build like as pressure and, and it builds, builds, builds. And the second he decides, I don't want to talk about this, like uh, I'm done. It just goes, it just falls off a cliff, like boom, 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 boom. And, and it, all this, it's all subconscious, hopefully, like the audience didn't quite know they're being manipulated. Um, but stuff like that, like one of my favorite things in a prior film is in Leon. You called it The Professional, I think, mm -hmm. right? And, and uh, there was this big subwoofer like in this one scene and then Leon or someone comes out of the, a closet and puts a knife against the guy's throat and the second it touches his skin, it goes. And you didn't realize it's there until it's gone. Right. And I love all that stuff where you can kind of get the audience used to something and then pull the rug from under them and they're like, whoa. This is like what I was saying before about how you got a, something constant, your brain filters it out, but it notices it as soon as it goes away. Right. And so that's, you can sneak something like that in and you don't really notice it until you hard cut it off and then all of a sudden you're like, whoa. And something like that feels like this pressure release, you know? And then one of the things I love that was that that felt really stylized to me, but again, going into Joshua's point of view, is you know the 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 spacewalk sequence uh, at the end when you know they're, they're trying to to take down Nomad. I'm sure that was a lot of fun uh, for 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 you from a, a sound effects mixing perspective. But that was that all came from yeah these guys, the concept and how we played it, and it was all my job was just to. Not mess it up. Because <laughs> you could have played Din, very... Din was with the Foley. Oh, gone. Yeah, exactly. You could have played it very naturalistically, but you took a different direction. So tell us about that. About kind of philosophically. The vacuum, the vacuum of space is the terrifying thing there, you know. And we set it up with the soldiers being like whipped out through, you know, off the shuttle out into space. And that's one of my favorite cuts too. Just yeah. the noise of the rush of air sucking out, and then. We're in space and you just see the little bodies floating. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, then also what we, when we started working with it, we realized that 
um, it's a great way of sort of contrasting Joshua with with Alfie because you become immediately aware that the only reason he's able to, to survive is because he's in this spacesuit, and she, of course, isn't. Um, and that becomes like immediately apparent and and kind of powerful in a way that just the realization, oh yeah, she's because by this point in the film, I think you've gotten sort of close to her in a way and, and feel, think of her as a person. Think of her as a person, and then it's like, okay, we're in the vacuum of space, but she's, she's fine. She's fine. Um, and there's something kind of powerful in that 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 hits you in that moment. I yeah. think. Yeah. And the sounds that you do hear are, you know, his internal sounds in his spacesuit. So that's contact mic recordings to, mm -hmm. and yeah, and then we're futzing sort of the communication between them. But uh, so it's not like acoustic sound, it's all Solidian kind of sound. Well, like I said, I could go for another hour. Um, but uh, sometimes we, we, we end this podcast by just going around the table and, and I, I ask you what your favorite moments uh, especially Dolby Atmos moments in the sound mix. So, you know, when you watch the film, it's being played back just a moment uh, from a sound perspective that actually gets you kind of giddy, makes you happy. Uh, we'll start with you, Dean. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> My last name is Z-U. That's always at the end. <laughs> uh, man, I love everything. I, I, there's so much in this movie that is subtle Atmos because a lot of times, you know, you can go crazy and do the flybys and all that kind of good stuff, which is fun. But uh, again, the atmospheres, and we are allowed to play them, heightened. I, that's what I love. I love all, just the tones and uh, inside places. And of course, then the fun stuff, you know, the flybys and whatnot but the, the big, the big, just, the big battle sequences yeah there's so much yeah, going on yeah. so and a lot of atmos i mean it was just fun if you watched uh, if you watch the atmos balls you're just having oh, yeah. <laughs> oh my god there's so much between music and effects yeah. yeah i love it uh it's really hard to narrow down some specific thing because you know it's like as you're working on it you're walking through you're like oh i love this part oh i love this part. <laughs> you know oh, i love this part. um you know, I don't know. I mean, if I had to just on the spot here pick a scene, maybe it would be that whole, you know, landing the radio head into, you know, landing on the ground and is one of them that I love. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, like what Dean was just saying, like the whole film's Atmos, right? I mean, it's it's not a matter of like how crazy can it get and the best thing is the craziest thing. Often that's not the best thing, you know? I mean, that's all maybe the worst thing. Um, and so the subtlety and the detail we can get to pop out when we're able to play sounds all over the place. And, and even when we're just like in the field with, you know, some bugs buzzing over here and the, the grass moving and the wind going and then the score playing and it's just like kind of coming from everywhere and, dialogue and it's able to be spread out so that you can get this detail that you just can't get when you squish that format down to something smaller. So, you know, it's like all of, in say 5.1, all of that stuff lives, it's all there, but now it's competing amongst itself for sort of a smaller space and you just, you know, 
lose some of the detail. And so, anyway. Gosh, um, I think one of the, I don't know, like one of the things that I'm happiest about with the film is that sometimes you make movies and you sit with an audience and you, there's a bit you're really looking forward to, like, oh, I can't wait for them to see this next bit. Then it happens and then the next cool bit is like 10 minutes away and you build up to that little 10 minute point and then you're like, oh, that was a cool moment. And the next, I feel like with this, it's always like one or two minutes away. Like, oh, there's this really cool thing that's gonna happen in a minute that's just, you're not supposed to do that. I wonder how they react to that. And they're quite consistent, like in terms of the way we've shaped the sound design and the visuals and stuff. And um, so I'm really happy with that. But I think something I guess I learned on the first film I did is that if you're gonna stylistically try and be a bit different, then you've got to do it straight away. Like if you wait, 50, you sort of set up the language of the film in like the first 10 minutes. And if you behave normally, you know, in that first 10 minutes and then start doing weird stuff, people are like, what the hell is this? Like what's going on? So you've got to kind of like be, do your thing within the first few minutes. And so I feel like the first time we really do something where I'm like, just, it's just odd in a beautiful way is straight after that explosion when it cuts to silence and the title card and then, oh, but sorry, it just cuts to the, um, you know, Joshua and, and Maya just playing in the, right. and it's like, there's a little sound there, but it's virtually nothing. And, it, and you shouldn't have that. You should have hear them laughing. You should hear the sound design, but it's like total silence. It feels like a ghost, an apparition of their memory and then just the, 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 the title. Like that sort of moment, it's like, you're so not supposed to do that. That's not what you're supposed to do in a big blockbuster. And I kind of sit there going, yeah. <laughs> like when things like that happen, cause I'm, it's that strange hybrid of, yeah. of like, a film, I do not believe that for a moment, a film reaches these heights, but it was like the joke I was when we were making, it was like, it's as if Terrence Malick had a baby with James Cameron kind of thing. <laughs> I, I feel like that, that's a Malicky moment that I really like, you know. That is a really interesting and distinctive way to describe this film. I love that. I normally describe it as they had sex. <laughs> but I was like, nah, this is going I'm online. I'm never gonna get that image out of my head. <laughs> you are their baby. Um, right, you gotta follow that. Okay, I don't think I can. Well, I was gonna say, what Dean did with Atmos for all of the nature um, sort of atmospheres, which are so immersive and beautiful, and I'm, I love nature, and to me, those are some of my favorite moments. So much that you actually reprise them during the end titles. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah we yeah, did. Yeah. That's we did, which um, I don't think people have done that very often, which is fun. Um, so, and, uh, but I was gonna say that, and then I was gonna say, well, a lot of the ceiling that you're using for Nomad um, but instead, I'll say Tom's mixing for <laughs> of Hans Zimmer's score. I think it's one of my favorite music mixes I've ever heard in any movie. It's so rich and beautiful and wide. And if you look at those Dolby Atmos balls, like on the actual panning monitor, it it's the most sort of dynamic use of music um, that I can remember. So. I'm gonna pick the last moment in the film, which is, you know, it's a close-up of Alfie. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Okay, carry on. Um, 
Yeah, and there's some, um, I just remember us being on the stage and really working a lot on that moment and trying to figure out like the balance between the music, which is beautiful, and the cheering of all the people who are, you know, cheering what's just happened. Um, and uh, it's just, I just remember feeling just really emotional and swept up and so with her, um, so connected to her as like the hero in some ways of, of, of the story. Um, and, it, and just, yeah, for me, it's like encapsulates the best use of sound and image in, in a very sort of um, elemental and direct emotional way it's um yeah yeah i'm glad that you brought that up and mentioned that and and talked about the emotion of the ending it actually tees up what i wanted to say uh to wrap this up conversation up really well uh garrett this is this is for you so i, I told you that uh, we got to go over to disney a couple of nights ago and screen the film and they were very gracious to bring us over but of course you know it is disney they're they're very concerned about security so uh I've never had this happen before. We actually had a security guard who sat in the room with us while we watched the film. And afterwards, as we were getting up to go, we were, he was chatting with us. And he was like, so who are you guys and what is this for? And I said, well, we're going to sit down with Gareth and the sound team in a couple of days and talk about the film. And he said, well, tell the director that he had me in tears at the end of the movie. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So wow. That's, a, that's, that's pretty high praise. you know? Wow. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, everything, the reason I love films and I don't seem to ever really do television and things like this. And someone asked me, like, what, would you ever do TV? I don't know, what's the deal? And, and I'm like, I don't really, not really into it. And they're like, why? And I had to think about, why do I not like it as much? And I think it's because films end, right? They're like, okay, I'm going to tell you this story, and you're not going to believe it. And in your mind, you have a punchline. You have this dro mic drop end. And you, it's all building to service that moment and then boom, credits, mm. right? And TV and other long form, you know, they just go on and on and on and on and on. And, and, and to me, the end is the most important moment in the entire movie. And everything in our movie worked backwards from that end shot. And you just prayed, like I was just praying that we could get a kid who could do pull this off and we, this is massive spoiler alert. So please <laughs> stop watching this if you've not seen the film, right? And just go see the film and then play this back. Um, the, the shot of Alfie at the end, I knew it was so important. We were filming it in a quarry. We were actually filming it in the same quarry that we shot Ground Zero where, where the robot comes alive and he cuts the cord. And it was just to the side and we had like about an hour and we went over there and we were like, the sun was going down. It was like, okay, Madeline, stand here, do this. And we set up a little dolly move and I was so paranoid, I was like, I'm gonna shoot this until she can't do it anymore. <laughs> like, cause maybe, maybe I didn't know when we were gonna get better. And there was all these people looking at her, it felt bad. We all, you know, tried to get them out of the way. And at one point we just like tried, we sort of pretended, I was like, okay, Madeline, like, and the winner of the best actress is, you know, like, and we're like, Madeline Boyle. And, we, and all the crew started cheering and whistling and you could feel it getting to her, like all this like love. And she started to well up and, and, and cry. And then I never cut, right? And so I just went, and then we got the end of the shot and I went, okay, reset. And then the camera gets yanked back to reset. 
And I didn't realize that's how that shot came about because I'd watch it without the sound. And then suddenly we're like, oh, can we, how, when, when's the out point? And suddenly the camera like whips back and you're going, what are we doing? This is gold. <laughs> what are we doing? And then in the mix, it was like, well, the music's trying to service that moment and give a mic drop. But so is the, like, I think it's a cheap trick, but like A New Hope does it really well where it ends with everyone cheering and it makes you want to cheer and then it cuts to credits. Mm -hmm. And so like hearing that cheer come in, but that started stepping on the music. And, and so it was a real balancing act to like get the music down, hear that cheer come, and then the music come back up and it do this crescendo and then a hard cut on the cut. And, and it all, it's like every, all the you know, planets aligning and firing on all cylinders, like every department going up to that moment, the acting, you know, the, the sound, the music, the mix, everything just coming together and then credits. And the directing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I shouted reset. <laughs> I screwed it up. So. But that's what gave her the relief, gave yeah. Madeline the relief. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I think I, I had to say, the heart of this film was like in there from the very beginning, you know. It's not reliant on any of this other, you know, sparkly stuff of all the the VFX and the great sound design and like all this stuff. The first, you know, iteration I saw of the movie like had none of that in it, right? And I was, and it's so emotional and it so got you and, you know, I'm sitting there just tearing up and I'm like, this is going to be amazing. Because once we put all that in there, it's not, the movie's not relying on all of that, you know, stuff to make it work. It works. And that's only going to just heighten all this. So well, that's, that's brilliant yeah. directing right there. <clears throat> so it's, it's, it's a real shame we ruined it all. <laughs> we we did. We had a, it was really great when you got that first cut. And then, well, yeah, then we well, just screwed it up. Congratulations, guys. The movie's really fantastic. I cannot wait for this to come out into the world and people to see it and respond to it. But uh, thank you guys so much for coming in, spending the time. I know you're all working on other projects now, and it's, uh, it's a great gift that you've given us to come in and talk to us about the film today. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Many thanks once again to Gareth, Eric, Ethan, Tom, and Dean for joining us today. And an extra special thanks to our friends at Disney for the early screening of the film and for helping bring this conversation together. And of course, for that security guard for giving me that story to wrap up the interview with. As I mentioned up top, the creator is now playing in a Dolby Cinema near you in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. You can find links to the tickets, as always, in our show notes. And if you'd like even more conversations with inspiring artists and filmmakers about how they use technology to tell their stories, please make sure you're subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube, in our show notes. Or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. If you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you'll find information about all of our programs, you can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, thanks again for joining us. This is the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry. Today's camera and lighting work are by Jonathan Hlutke, Zach McKinney, and Joe Adams. Thanks again for watching. <laughs>